name is Gabriel Stellion Shanks. I'm the artistic director of the Drama League, and welcome to In Conversation. This is the Drama League's digital video and podcast series where we sit down with some of the most interesting and influential directors working in the American theater. If you're interested in seeing more episodes, visit us at dramaleague.org and click on digital series, or simply search for the Drama League wherever you find your podcasts. We are recording this particular episode in May 2020 in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I am really happy to tell you that all of the artists appearing in this series are donating their time and talent and energy to help us raise funds for the Director's Emergency Relief Fund. This fund is providing essential support and services for directors who are suffering during this time, as well as the families of those directors. So if you'd like to join us and donate, you can do so at drumleague.org. Simply click on the donate button. And if you are a director suffering during this time, please visit our pandemic resource area there. We've got tons of resources for you. You do not have to suffer through this alone. I am really excited today to talk to not one, not two, but three of my favorite people in the entire world. They are all extraordinary directors in their own right, but they wear two hats. They are also associate artistic directors at three of the most important regional theaters in our country. They are also all women and also people of color. This is gonna be a fascinating conversation. It is my pleasure and joy to introduce you. I'll start alphabetically, but we have to start at the letter W for this conversation. Uh, to Nicole Watson, the Associate Artistic Director of the Roundhouse Theater in Bethesda, Maryland. Hey, Nicole. Hi. Dawn Monique Williams, the Associate Artistic Director of the Aurora Theater in Berkeley. Hey, Dawn. Hello. <laughs> and finally, Barone Yusefzada, the Associate Artistic Director of Jiva Theater Center in Rochester, New York, and one of the co-founders of Maya Directors. Hey, Barone. Hey, what's up? How are you all? How's your pandemic going? <laughs> Yep, that's about <laughs> it, right? That's how we're all feeling. Are you the cities that I just named where your theater companies are? Are you all sheltered in place in those cities? Yeah. Well, I live in Oakland, California, which is next door to Berkeley, so I'm sheltered in place in Oakland. I'm really excited to talk to you because at the Drama League, um, all of you also, I did not mention, happen to be alums of the Drama League Directors Project. So I'm intensely proud to know you. Um, and you know that my job is spending a whole lot of time helping early and mid-career directors discover their path in our field. And one of the questions that happens a lot is that of artistic leadership, that directors are curious about what it takes to become an associate artistic director or artistic director. The problem I have in that conversation, however, is that they all think they know what an artistic director is. They're usually wrong, but they think they know what that job is but they have no clue what your job is, not a <laughs> drop. So help them out. Let's start with, uh, Peron, I'm gonna start with you. Sure. What is an associate artistic director? What do you do? Um, you know, my, my position is um, a weird one to start with in some ways because I have a dual position. I'm the associate artistic director and the director of engagement. And um, I think that in some ways those two parts of my job are complementary to one another. And I think that in other ways they're, they're sort of at loggerheads with one another um, because um, an associate artistic director, in my experience thus far at Jiva, it's been about a year, um, uh, is is um, part of that artistic team that's all about keeping processes moving smoothly, facilitating um, and being part of season planning and um, working within, I think, a set of um, structures and um, protocols that have been established. Whereas as a director of engagement, I see my job a lot of the time as being the person to um, ask the question of, of why are we doing it like this? Or is there another way for us to look at this? Um, can we actually examine the underlying assumptions to this methodology and whether or not those assumptions are correct? And so um, I, I see the associate AD job as being one to row the boat and the director of engagement rocks the boat and those are both my gig. Um, 
which is, uh, you know, certainly interesting and sometimes creates a little bit of a, um, an, a, a sense of inner conflict, but it's, I think, a, a pretty exciting one to navigate. Excellent. What about you, Don? Yeah, um, I have the singular title of Associate Artistic Director, but I wear many, many hats. So, I mean, my primary function, I think, is sort of like chief advisor um, for the artistic director, right? He consults me um, on the bulk of his artistic decisions and he wants my opinion and point of view on everything. Um, but in addition to that, I am the casting director. I am the literary management. Uh, I manage our community partners program. I manage our student matinee program. I'm part of the education team, which means I do um, a certain number of post-show talkbacks. I do all of them for the student matinees, but even some of them for our general audiences. Um, I help with season selection. I'm a member of senior staff. I do a lot of outward facing things. So like I'm our liaison to um, NNPN. Um, I'm our liaison to the City of Berkeley's Cultural Trust. I'm our liaison to the East Bay Arts Advocacy Alliance. So I also like serve on committees and, and things of that nature. Um, and also, I'm, I'm certain we'll get to this in our conversation, that as one of only two women of color on Aurora staff, I, um, without fail, <laughs> am um, sort of the like Chief EDI, EDI. <laughs> I'm like, hey. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so I'm a bit also uh, of, a, of a rabble rouser. So, um, so part, part of my job is to actually challenge the status quo. I was actually hired to um, bring a different perspective. Nicole, is that your job? No, yeah. I mean, just um, I think uh, because I know both Perone and Dawn, I hope they won't mind that I, one of the, one of the many things we have in common, one of the things we have in common is that we all took this position at institutions that never had associate artistic directors before. I think that's correct. Yes. Yes. Right. So we are new to a job that is new to the organization. Um, and it is interesting that uh, as both Cronin and Don pointed out, it's like, the invitation was to be a bit of a boat rocker and just trying to find this balance between rocking the boat in what you feel to be the best ways possible and also sometimes feel like you're the only person rocking the boat that you were invited to be in, <laughs> you know, and you're like, I thought we were all going to rock this boat, you know. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I sort of joke, I'm two years into my job and I sort of joke that it's the garbage dump job. Um, and that doesn't mean that I don't like the things that I do. It just means that the job has so many parts. It's season planning, it's script reading, it's I'm the directing mentor for our teen ensemble company. I am also the casting director. I am also a member of the management team slash senior staff meeting. I also spend a lot of time, you know, um, brainstorming with Ryan about ideas, um, you know, our commissioning programs and things like that. Um, since I've been there, one of the things that I took the initiative to make part of my job is I've become responsible for our relaxed performances, which are for people in the neurodiverse community. And we had actually done our first one um, right before um, COVID-19 shut everything down. So it's an, it, it, it is an interesting job because there's the thing that was on the piece of paper that you got invited to do. And then when you, the specific person, show up, there is a negotiation that you have to have with the institution and the people that invited you because you are no longer a piece of paper in a job description. You are a working artist who has come to mm -hmm. affect change and right. be an artistic leader in a way that feels authentic to you. Right. And What's interesting is, though, you know, there's some commonalities in what the three of you just said, but also wild differences in what your institutions are asking you. But I, I do think there is this idea of you, the job growing into you and you growing into the job is 
has the job changed over time? Uh, all of you are relatively new in the last few seasons to your positions, but has the job changed since you've had it? I would say for me, yes, because it was a new position for the theater and I inherited some of the tasks of the former artistic associate who is now the artistic director. So like casting and, and literary management were his job um, and I inherited those, but but our community partners program is brand new to the to the institution. And then also the things that just excited me. So doing a lot of outward facing things, doing um, things like speaking at this roundtable right now, I consider part of the job, you know. Um, and it will continue to change. And right now in this moment, as we're navigating what it means to even be a producing organization and what the heck are we producing um there's a whole new wealth of things being added to my job while other things are taking a little bit of a back seat you know so i line produced a, a zoom reading that we we didn't stream it live but i had to figure out what's different about line producing a reading when we could be in our physical space and what's different to create a digital environment um, and I'm finding that I work very closely with our production manager, which um, is also a new position in the way that she embodies it. It's a new position at uh, at the theater. She and I started at the same time. We're less than a year in. So, um, so many things are in evolution and I imagine will continue um, to be so as we also negotiate um, funding and what that means for my position going forward. Um, and I should also mention, it's not part of my contract, but I do direct at the theater. So the artistic director has the discretion to hire me or not in any given season. Um, I think some associate artistic directors, it's part of the deal that they would be directing. And, um, and uh, he and I agreed that there would be a good faith effort to always match me with the project, but that the priority would be the right artist on the right project. Um, which means I do have the the sort of leeway um, to continue my freelance career outside of our building. Yeah, I, I think it's one of the things I'm most curious about to talk to the three of you because I have gotten to see all of you work and I know you as extraordinary artists, but I know from my experience as an artistic director, when I took on this job, it severely impacted my ability to create art. And I just, I, I know that all of you directed your companies, but do you, do you find that it is impacting your ability to be an actual director in the world? For good yes. or not? Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, it, it's mixed. You know, I, I, I cannot say yes to everything anymore. What, you know, when I was freelancing at the same time, I don't have to say yes to everything, you know, the, it's a different kind of hustle. Um, uh, similar to John, part, uh, part of, well, in my contract, I am asked to direct at least one show per season. So part of our artistic planning is finding a show that feels right for me. Um, and I'm also allowed at least one out of town gig. Since I've been there, I have done other workshops and other projects. It is always a, it's a calendar conversation and how can I do two things at once and juggle? Um, at the same time, I, you know, I definitely remember in, um, I was offered a, a directing contract for a play that I didn't particularly care for. And because I had this job, it did make it easier for me to say, no, thank you. You know, and if I had been freelancing, I don't know that I could have just said no that quickly to that contract. But knowing that I only have a limited amount of time to be away from roundhouse directing on some level allows me to think more carefully about what I want to be doing as opposed to feeling like I should try and make all things work you know so it's it yeah I feel I feel pretty similarly it's part of my contract that I direct two shows in our 10 show season um and uh and that that was a really important part of it for me to be able to leave my freelancing career to some extent and also move to Rochester. 
Um, and so I, I feel very similarly to Nicole in the sense that like it, it means also that I don't feel required to take on everything in the same way that I did previously where all of my income came from freelance work. And there has there have been cases both where our season was worked around a freelance commitment that I had that I really wanted to honor. I'd been developing um, Brian Quijada's Kid Friends and Pablo, which was at the Kennedy Center in the fall. And we knew those dates so far in advance really at the beginning of our season planning process for this past season. And so we were able to look at the scheduling of when I would be directing in order for me to be able to honor that commitment to a play that I'd been developing for a long time and for a premiere at the Kennedy Center that I obviously didn't want to miss. And on the flip side, you know, there was, there, there was a freelance offer that came in before COVID that overlapped with dates by like five days. And by that point, we'd re really settled our season and I had to say no. Um, of course, now, like, who knows what any of those calendars are, but um, but it, it definitely cuts both ways. Um, but I don't think that having a position as an associate has meant that people assume I'm unavailable, which was my fear, that people would assume that that meant that I didn't do any freelance directing anymore and that, like, all of those opportunities would evaporate it's really been more that um uh that people still reach out and i have to be very curatorial and very um organized and forward thinking about scheduling and using the certain number of weeks i get every year in my contract to go do outside projects in a way that really fulfills me and um fulfills my artistry outside of where it intersects with jiva well, and that intersection with Jiva is one of the things that I think is most misunderstood about your jobs, both as directors and as associate artistic directors. And I would love to talk to you about your input into season selection, because that's one of the great mysteries to a lot of people who aren't artistic directors or associate. It's a, it's a deeply complex process. And I think all of you are probably integrally involved in that conversation at your institutions. How, how, how do you approach the season selection process and what part do you play in it? So we actually start our process at Jiva not by talking about plays at all, but by talking about what's in the world, uh, what's going on, what's in the, um, in the zeitgeist, what are the things that are the big questions that are on our minds and the things that we think are important touchstones for us to bear in mind as we start actually looking at material. Um, Jiva's uh, audience is a very loyal one uh, and a very um, large subscriber audience who have a, a very particular set of expectations that we can cater to and subvert, but the subversion is one to be navigated with great delicacy and so um there's the expectation of a big musical that starts off the season there's the expectation of a comedy in january when it is an arctic nightmare <laughs> up here in rochester um and and there's the expectation that in um, the smaller virtue spaces in the fielding that the work is perhaps more contemporary and might be more theatrically um, and formally experimental um, because it is in that space. Um, inside of that process, uh, I, I like to ask, how can we shake that up? How can we play with our model? Um, how can plays in our larger space be in conversation with plays in our smaller space? And as it, I think, permeates the work that I do in every facet of what I do at Jiva, um, the the I won't say that it's just EDI in the sense of making sure we have enough playwrights and directors of color, although that is essential to me, um, but also making sure that whatever material we're doing, we are doing from an anti-racist standpoint and from the most inclusive standpoint possible, which, which does also affect, I think, and must affect any canonical work even if it was written by white men, and how are we going to approach that in 2020 
um, or onward, given the landscape that we're in and the political environment that we're in. And so um, for me, the, the, um, that awakening uh, and that realization of like how important that work is in season planning and not just in hiring um, has been uh, really critical. Nicole, how about you? Oh, uh, you know, we usually in the past, we've sort of spent the summer reading a lot of plays. Um, because we're in Bethesda, I will try and go up to New York, probably more often than I should, uh, to read plays and see readings and uh, see new work. Um, one of the reasons I was hired was because Roundhouse wanted to do more new plays. Um, and we usually do plays we, that have sort of had a really wonderful run in New York and we find really sort of um, politically activating, sort of hits the head and the heart at the same time. Um, but similar, you know, there is, we have um, subscribers and, you know, who love a big musical and, you know, we're also in um, an area where there are a number of other theaters. So there's also this sort of conversation of like, well, what is the roundhouse season that will be different than a studio season or different that, you know, arena will usually always get the biggest play because they have the largest house, but it, it is also an interesting environment where we're trying to figure out what feels right for our particular audience and what feels like a roundhouse play. We do a lot of ensemble plays, um, but it's, it's, you know, I think the myth is like you run a theater and you just do plays you really like. And it's really not that. You, you do a lot of plays you like, but there is a puzzle, you know, the scale of the piece. We have resident artists, so we read plays to find work for those particular artists, um, you know, and try and find stories that suit their interests. Um, we have resident designers, um, you know, uh, there are four resident artists every year. So finding work is particular for them, right? And, you know, if one of our resident artists says, well, I have a show in the fall, then we're also now trying to find two plays that are right for that artist for the spring. And, you know, it, it, it's, it is a little bit of a puzzle, but I think to the best of our ability, we try and be really intentional about finding a collection of plays that sort of speaks to, um, supporting our local artists, supporting living writers, supporting, you know, the, you know, the group of people that I think we really want to champion. And, and it's, it's hard because I would love to champion hundreds of people. And yet the, you know, the Excel spreadsheet might only give me room for 45, you know, um, that's a terrible number to use. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> But it, it is, it, it's, it is more complicated. Um, I wish I could find a way to make it easier. I wish I could just say these plays, but you know, you are looking at a season, you are looking at a particular moment in time, you are looking at like, what, how do you provide a scope of human and theatrical experience for a group of people who are supposed, who theater to me at its best are coming into the same building and experiencing something different. And then they come to that building and, you know, we're in a moment now where we're, we're not going into buildings, you know, so trying to, I think, figure out um, what kind of work can bring us back, should bring us back, what kind of work will move, help move us through this, you know, um, I think are some of the conversations we're starting to have because the old way is um, not gone, certainly on pause. Yeah. Well, and those people coming into the building are members of a community and I and I think that's really tough and Don I I think Berkeley is one of the most deceptively complex communities to make art in in the yes. world yes uh, so it's got to be a part of your equation at Aurora it it absolutely is um, especially because it's so important um, to Josh our sort of new artistic director um, that we be a storyteller for our community and historically um, Aurora has only ever done like one playwright of color a season and um, and even with the season that Josh and I inherited the whole back half of the season was exclusively white actors that back half of the season has been canceled so um, maybe we won't have to bear the shame of that being the reality um, but at the same time Josh and I 
had worked because I'm fully integrated in the season selection process. Um, as is, we have a small staff, so you know, so everybody gets to kind of give voice, and of course, the managing director, um, you know, she tries to make the budget work <laughs> for what Josh is artistically driven to. But you know, there are parameters: how many acting contracts we can offer because we are an equity house, and you know, our space is very intimate, so we can only ever have a cast of eight, but we could really only do that twice. We do six shows a season, so we couldn't do all shows with eight actors. Um, but, you know, Josh and I had just programmed our first season in deep partnership as a team together. And of course, he's the bottom line, um, but we worked so so deeply collaboratively on on picking these shows and finding the right artists to tell these stories. And it was the first time sort of in Aurora history that we were gonna be able to boast of a season that had half playwrights of color. Now, of course, in the, in the COVID storm, we don't, we don't know where we'll be at with that particular season, um, but, but we were really proud of that. And, and one of the things that's uh, is a challenge for us, and, and especially in one of the Edie and I roles I play, because like Crone said, it's not, it is plays and casting and designers, it is that, but it's also more so um, there's a real kind of um, unaware, Berkeley audiences believe themselves, well, they are highly educated, intellectually rigorous, thoughtful, they want, they want things to really challenge the brain, but they also see themselves as very progressive. So when you say, hey, we have microaggressions happening in our lobby, we have patrons that are treating other patrons really crappy, they, they don't believe that about themselves. This is Berkeley. That kind of thing doesn't happen in Berkeley. We're progressive. And it's like, yeah, but you just complained. You literally wrote a letter to the box office about having to sit behind a wheelchair. So how progressive are you if you can't make space for people who use mobility devices to be in the theater? You know, um, you literally moved three seats over because the young black person next to you laughed out loud. So these are a lot of the challenges that we're facing. And as um, Josh, who's a generation younger than his predecessor, is trying to get more young people in the theater, do more kind of new works, cutting edge things, but not isolate or alienate um, our subscriber base who is loyal, loyal right now. I mean, loyal to a fault that they're buying, um, you know, subscribing to a season that we don't know we can produce, right? So they're loyal. We don't want to, um, just discount them. But so all of that has to go into us picking a season, you know, so all of that has to be a factor when we think what will be our, you know, like, um, we use weird terms. I bet you all do it. You're, they're not weird. They're just, I wish they weren't the terms we use where it's like, um, you know, what's our, you know, for sure hit, you know, and when we say, you know, Edward Albee is the guaranteed hit. And I'm like, really? That? <laughs> That's that's for sure. We just know Edward Albee's gonna be the thing that sells. So we're so we are all at all times trying to balance that. Like, how do we get this Christian play in and this Edward Albee play in? And you know, like Aurora's never done an August Wilson. So how can we get in a, a Wilson? But also, what about you know Katori Hall and Dominique Moore? So so we're always um, trying to figure out what those intersections are of um, Perone said it best where it's kind of like you sh you stroke a little but you poke a little so it's like we like bring them along and then just and then just challenge them a little bit um so that all of that factors into season selection and I'm literally right there at Josh's side and I tell him openly when I'm like I don't like that idea doesn't mean I won't produce it for you it doesn't mean I won't support you in making that choice but it's not to my taste and it's also kind of good that there's places where our taste profile is an exact alignment and then there's places where our taste profile is so divergent so divergent and I think that that actually makes for more rigorous conversation I love musicals Josh doesn't care for musicals he's a very like straight up realism and I'm like all about heightened realism magic realism um but then there are places where it's just like we agree so profoundly yeah uh, I just, I need to write down, stroke a little, poke a little, so I can. Yeah, uh, me too. Me too. Yeah, I said row the boat, rock the boat, but like stroke a little, poke oh, a little. I'm using it. Is, uh, I want it on a t-shirt. 
chef's kiss. But to that idea of, of driving the boat, rocking the boat, and all of you talked about that in, I, I think you said rabble rouser at your staff. And, um, you know, two things I want to say. First off is I, um, I want to give a shout out to my own associate artistic director, Nylon, who has to do that work for us. And we tried desperately not to make him the EDI unofficial chief in charge. And we work really hard at it, but I know that's something he has to go with. So thank you, Nylon. Um, the second thing is, you know, I know the work of Aurora a little less. I, one of my shames is I don't know the West Coast theaters as well as I know the East Coast theaters, but I certainly knew Jiva and Roundhouse before you were there. And as your seasons get announced, I can see your hand in them. Mm -hmm. um, I think all three of you are changing the programming. Um, so whatever that poke a little, stroke a little is that you're doing, it is working. Your theaters are being more responsive than they've ever been, in my opinion, to your communities. Um, I wanna get into that idea of, of the, the, um, uh, the job requirement that is unspoken of being that person. But before we leave this concept of artistic leadership, I'd, I'd love to just do a snap poll. Now that you've been an associate artistic director, do you aspire to be an artistic director someday? Yes. Yes. Not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's fair. I think, it, I think um, you know, I recognize in my journey and listening to you all that what we think it is is not what it is and not what it's becoming. And so, you know, a not sure is if I were in, in your shoes, if I if weren't one already, I'd probably be saying that myself. I, I think it, I think the theater's changing pretty significantly. Um, I spoke in the intro about um, a lot of your commonalities. You are all women. Um, I believe uh, I can say with some certainty that all of the artistic directors at your companies are men. So you share that experience. Um, you are all people of color, and you are all new to your positions. And we have seen in the last few years some really wonderful advancements in companies all over the country with artistic leaders, uh, both artistic directors, associate artistic directors, directors of new play, who are increasingly, we are seeing women and people of color in these jobs. I, I, I think we need to say up front that they are still dismayingly and overwhelmingly held by white cis male men. And I need to come out and say that I am a white cis male man in this conversation. Um, but, you know, I think of the, of the extraordinary work that Hannah Sharif and Stephanie Ivara and uh, Maria Goyanis and Jacob Padron and Nataki Garrett are, are and even like in the last month, I know we're all friends with Tamela Woodard and Rebecca Martinez, and they joined these, this company of really exciting new leadership in the theater. Um, I'd love to know your thoughts about what we hope is not a wave and is just now a thing. Um, and speak to the idea of having to go into these traditionally white institutions um, where your job has either been invented or you suddenly have um, a presence as a non-white or non-male person, how have you addressed that idea of being the equity, diversion, diversity, and inclusion officer um, unofficially? Um, what, is that, what does that do to your work? Yeah, I, uh, it's interesting. Uh, for me, I mean, I think actually, um, you know, Stephanie Ibarra was one of the first people who I met through the Women's Project who was like, do you think about arts leadership? You know, I was just so excited to be directing plays um, that, you know, having left teaching that, that doing anything more than that, I don't think I was thinking of. So it is really wonderful to see um, some of our peers who I know personally have championed my work to be in these leadership roles and I think inspired me to think about how I might be in the American theater in a different way. And I'm really grateful for their continued leadership, you know, Stephanie, Hannah, Nataki, all, you know, just everybody. I'm very excited for them. I, I feel like part of the way we're going to move through this COVID-19 moment, um, I know it will be in part whatever the new version of what we're doing will be because we have um, so many new leaders that had to make a really difficult decision 
in the midst of probably already making difficult decisions. Um, and so I'm grateful for their leadership. Um, uh, to the second point of your question, you know, it, for me, it's really interesting. Um, speak of it personally, like I grew up in mostly white neighborhoods. I feel like I, I taught at these 2020 private schools. I spent a lot of, I guess I'll say my youth um, in predominantly white spaces. And yet when I started directing, um, so much of that work was cultivating rooms for immigrants, for artists of color, for women, for voices that, you know, need to be heard. You know, I felt like my artistic life um, more lined up with I, I, my spirit, you know, because I think that's what art should do. Um, and when I was offered this job and Ryan and I spoke about the fact that it was a predominantly white institution, there was a part of me that thought it would be easier for me to do that again. Um, and it wasn't as easy as I thought it would be because my art life was so much about just being in more diverse, uh, inclusive spaces. Um, at the same time, you know, I, while it's, you know, it's hard to always be the EDI person that like, I feel fundamentally that that is my job. Like I can't, I cannot, will not work at a place that will not aspire to the same values that I have. Like, I just, I cannot do it. You know, I did not leave directing to not be able to pursue and champion the values that are really important to me about our artistic spaces. So, you know, so yeah, well, it, it's a thing you have to do and the thing I want to do. Um, I think the challenge of being new to an organization and being a new woman of color to an organization and a job that never existed before is that sometimes the work can feel really reactive because you're always, you are pushing up against the thing that always existed before you, you know, and, and that for better or for worse is just to me the nature of part of the job. You know, that doesn't mean I don't get along with my colleagues. That doesn't mean things are bad. It just feels like the nature of the job is to react to things that have already been in place and to be the person to question and stuff. And I've talked for a long time. Yeah. But and for, for own, I, I just want to say, it seems like something that is much more pervasive than maybe I or other white people or men realize that that it's not just in the office or in the rehearsal room. It's uh, as Don says, it's in the audience. It's in the board meeting. It's on the street. It's representing people at city council meetings. It, like, it is it that pervasive? So when I first uh, started the position uh, and was in conversations with our artistic director about uh, about directing for the season. Um, Mark and I chatted, Mark Cuddy, uh, Jiva's AD now for 25 years. Um, and, I, and I said, I want to be really clear, I'm not here to take a job from a freelance director of color. Uh, I'm here to create jobs for them. I would love to see a season where I'm not the only Middle Eastern director, where we're doing multiple Manasa plays. Um, and I think, he really, I think he really heard that. And that was but a drop in the bucket of what I then started to see them being inside of the organization in terms of what true, meaningful, anti-racist transformation requires. Um, and I think that that was largely informed by the fact that I um, have this engagement, um, community engagement uh, uh, responsibility and this dual title. And that um, in thinking about engagement and what is it really and talking to various other artistic directors, a lot of the people that you mentioned, um, Hannah, Maria, Jacob, I, you know, it, it, it became very clear to me that the theater had to um, really uh, go on an, a, a journey towards internalizing anti-racist practices and policies in order for community engagement work to be truly meaningful and transformative and not fall into the pitfalls that it often falls into where predominantly white organizations um, airdrop into communities, extract something from them in a really transactional way, and then abandon them again and 
wonder why those people aren't buying tickets when the, the proof is right there in the nature of that whole interaction and how commodified it was and how uh, exploitative it was. Um, and so the, the extent to which I see my job as, um, as one of uh, advancing an anti-racist set of values and inviting the institution to go on a journey of a, an often painful reflection on what the history has been and what one's own decision-making has been in order for us to then make better policy um, and make better decisions going forward, it is lonely and exhausting. And, um, you know, and as, I'm the only woman of color on senior staff and I'm one of very few on the staff as a whole. Uh, and just like Nicole said, I, I would not be able to look myself in the mirror if I didn't do that work. But while I see it as my responsibility, I'm trying not to see it as my fault. Um, uh, because you get some wins, but you don't get them all. And, um, and I think the real challenge for me has been in learning not to internalize where an institution is on its journey as a reflection on how effective I was or how right I was, <laughs> because that's the other piece of it, is that it can start to infuse one with some doubt about whether what you're seeing or what you think needs to change is really just you, you know, like being a Cassandra, right? And I'm like, no, like I sort of have to talk myself off that ledge sometimes and say like, that's, that's not you or that's not on you. That's on, that's on a, a, an institutional culture that moves at a glacial pace. And uh, it will, you can't, you know, you can't make the Titanic take a hard right. So you gotta, you gotta give it time and, and also identify the wins where you have them. Right. Well, and I think, you know, for all of us who are dedicated to um, anti-racist practices in the theater, I think even some of the language the three of you are using is striking me. The, the idea of slots in general, um, mm -hmm. or, the, you know, the fact that the entire back half of your season dawn uh, was filled with white actors, there are the, the it, it must feel insurmountable at times. Um, like Don, as you enter a conversation, that does that idea Perón just said that you you can't win them all. Does that resonate in in your work? <laughs> it it does, um, absolutely. Because like Perone, you know, I'm one of two women of color on our staff, um, and certainly she and I approach things differently. We're we are not monolithic. We don't share the same view on every single thing. Um, but I have more of a hand in casting and things like that. She's our, our marketing director. So she, she's, you know, deals with other stuff on a more regular basis. And the, the one thing that um, I'm always a little wary of is how easy it is for people to dismiss you when they see you as the angry black woman. Mm -hmm. And so it's this tightrope that I have to walk because a lot of days I am the angry black woman. But I know if they can call me that, then they won't hear me. So I feel very fortunate that my artistic director, um, Josh, um, is deeply invested in these things and was before he took this position. And as I joined the staff, the staff had already started engaging in some trainings. They were already trying to get some, uh, some training set up for the board. So I feel very fortunate that, um, that it is an articulated priority but it's the sort of microscopic stuff that happens day to day that I sometimes feel like I'm the person that has to call out those things. So we recognize when we have a usher who's problematic toward a patron or, or we, we rectified some situations right away when we learned that some people were basically being carted at the box office and others weren't. And that even though our box office staff was following um, a certain set of protocols, the patrons didn't know that. And so it felt very targeted, right? So like, if you're Gold Star, we're supposed to ask for ID. So this person bought their ticket through Gold Star, they're being asked for ID. That person also is uh, Black or young. The next patron isn't being asked. So we had to institute policies 
so that for the patrons, the optics weren't that it was about race or gender or uh, disability. Um, and so sometimes it's, it's the, it's the like smaller things that I feel like I'm having to call out. We do a monthly um, kind of optional um, EDI meeting where board members are welcome, members of our ad advisory council are welcome and staff members are welcome. And I go every month because I know without fail that I'm likely to be the only person of color. Um, but I talk very little, often last, so that they can dump what they need to dump and then I can just say the targeted things I need to say. And one of the things that um, happened at our last one is we're talking about all these new systems that we may have to put in place um, requiring temperature checks and people wearing masks or do we have to get apps on our phone for contact tracing and all these new things that we have to put in place while we also were having a conversation about how hard it is to educate our patrons on microaggressions and i was like friends we are a 501c3 organization we get that status by agreeing to provide a service to our community that c3 comes from us saying it's going to be an education and I cannot believe we are talking about the mask regulations and temperature checks at the door in the same conversation where we would say it's near impossible to teach our audience members to not be racist jerks. I don't buy it. I just don't buy it. And I'm not, I'm not going to let us operationalize. And I'm saying this out loud. I'm not going to let us operationalize one set of values and pretend that we I don't have to also operationalize this other set of values. And then somebody said, well, these things are state mandated. Title IX, affirmative action, anti-racism, anti-discrimination has been state mandated since the 60s. Right. So let's get on board. Like, I, right. just, I just want us to not be looking at these things as separate issues, right? Like we have a job to do to be ADA compliant. We have a job to do to be anti-racist. Our job may grow to include temperature checks, sure. But I just, I, it was just such dissonance for me. So for me, it's, it's those little things. Like when we start getting so far afield on one thing that I'm like, but friends, meanwhile, 20 year old people of color do not feel safe in this building. And we think we're programming for them and they don't wanna come because they're told not to sip through their straw not to chew their gum, don't laugh. So it's, it's those little things because Josh has a mind towards the playwrights and, and I, I told him straight up, I said, I won't work here if we continue to cast. I said, I know we inherited this season, but I can't work here if we're gonna cast three shows in a row, all white. I won't, and he said, I won't, you know, he said, I won't work. Here. You know, so, we, so those things he already has a mind towards is some of those like under, the little undercurrent things that people just aren't checking for, that I have to be the person to sort of wave the flag on. Um, and I also just wanna shout out my sister friends, Hana and Nataki, who have been such great mentors and advisors to me. And I was so thrilled at all these announcements of all these people taking these leadership positions. And I hope that we continue to support them through this global health crisis, because I, I was already a little apprehensive, I don't want to say worried, but apprehensive that, you know, the, that boards need to really step up and give them the adequate time mm -hmm. to, to show their full leadership capacity. And now in the face of these uh, budget challenges and programming challenges, I just hope the people that hired them continue to, to lift them up and maintain that belief in them, because I think these people can do these jobs. And I think their innovation and cre creativity can radically um, shape this field into the one we want, yeah. right? I, I think that the door is wide open right now. Yeah. Can I, I piggyback, I, oh, sorry. Can no, I just no. piggyback on the, on Don's angry black woman uh, statement, which, you know, it's so interesting to me and I don't know if Donna Perone, you've had this experience at your institutions where because you are the only one or the one of two, um, that what I have discovered sometimes is, well, I don't want to be the angry black woman. I'm also aware of how my white female colleagues are unwilling to speak up sometimes mm -hmm. because of the way race and power works. 
And it's so strange to feel like, not sorry, I should take that back. My power is the fact that for whatever reason, I am not afraid to call it what it is and say what it is and, you know, speak its name where I have definitely noticed that how delicate and careful, you know, some of my colleagues are. And, and it does also, I think, breed a little bit of resentment because in my directness, perhaps I have affected change. And I don't know how someone else approached a conversation about a change they wanted to affect. But it is the power dynamics, I think, of being a woman of color at a white institution and the being an outsider um, and how you can leverage that. Because I think there are other people within the institution that are will not, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, choose not to use their voice in the same way. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I think that the, I, like I purposely, you know, lean into, you are going to hear me today because no one else has said the thing. It's sometimes frustrating, though, to be the only person that keeps saying the thing, though. It yeah. is. It is. And also, I've, I'm, I've definitely had that experience. And sometimes even in connecting with other folks to say, like, hey, isn't it, isn't it weird that or, you know, don't you find this off putting that word, you know, insert example here a lot of times the answer has been well you know this is the way this is the way it's always been done as and often people confide in me like yeah I try I tried to bring that up seven years ago 10 years ago 15 years ago whatever and and I I mean I think that if this pandemic should do anything it should it 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 should be to fully destroy the phrase this is how we've always done it Mm. um uh there is no there is no need to rely on precedent if we're starting with every email with in these unprecedented times. Um, and so, uh, and every car commercial and every, you know, like every interaction, right? And so um, this reliance on um, a, a way of doing things that's really just about um, being in one's comfort zone and uh, um, and enjoying uh um, what that comfort zone privileges, okay. uh, uh, there, there's just, there, there was never a better time for us to reexamine and, and deconstruct all of that. Okay. Um, and so I, but I, I, I feel similarly, Nicole, and I've often found myself saying, well, okay, you said it 10 years ago, I'm going to say it now. And I'm going to, and maybe it'll be heard differently 10 years later because yeah. of what's in the, sociopolitical zeitgeist and um and maybe that person needs to hear it however many times to hear it but i'm not going to stop saying it um again it's not about it is my responsibility but it's not my fault so um you know but it's it's hard to go into those conversations knowing that chances are nobody's going to have your back yeah uh and you might end up looking like the bad guy um, but I think that, um, I think this job has been a, a, a lesson for me and the fact that it can be actually be, it can be really useful sometimes to let people be mad at you, um, because then they spend some time mad at you and then they think about why they're mad. And then maybe eventually they realize they're not actually mad at you. They're just having some feelings about the thing that you made them aware of and made visible. Um, and that that's necessary and that's part of rocking the boat in that, in that, you know, or, or poking as <laughs> Dawn said in that, in that way to advance our values. Yeah. This is making me think of two things. One is in, in the, um, description to this video, in addition to links about, um, Perona and Donna Nicole and the theaters that they are representing today. I, I realize we're tossing around Hana like everyone knows who Hana is. And they so, should. <laughs> um, well, we're going to make sure they do. Um, and, and there are a few, a few other people I just want to throw out as I think Mealy Ben Susan was doing this long before many other people. Yeah. Barry Fleming, I can't wait to see what he does in Louisville. Um, so we're going to make a big list. It will not be an exhaustive list, but we'll make a list so people can check those things. 
The other thing I just want to say to any um, white pe theater people who are listening to this tape is, um, or this video, is that um, it is not the responsibility of people of color to um, collect us up or, or teach us anti-racist principles. Um, TCG uh, uh, in particular has some truly transformative um, anti-racist practice workshops. Um, Corinna Schulenberg has been a leader in this space. Um, and I just encourage all of you to stop depending on the people of color in your institutions to uh, do this work and do, it is all of our work. Um, and to step up um, to do those things. Um, we are real close to running out of time and I wanna get to like um, uh, just some things I'm curious about the three of you because I have uh, you know, watched all of you for so long. Um, I, I, I hesitate to say, I think I just wanna ask some fun questions, but um, I am really curious. You've all worked all over the country. You've worked in tons of theaters and done a lot of things as directors or as associate artistic directors. I'd love to know who is a dream collaborator that you haven't worked with yet, that you would either like to direct or, uh, or work with as a director or that you'd like to bring to your theater. Does anyone have a name that immediately jumps to mind? Lin-Manuel Miranda, we're talking big dreams. Here we go. <laughs> Hamilton in 2034 at the Aurora Theater. <laughs> yeah. Dreaming big, I'm gonna go there. Uh, why, why Lin-Manuel? I mean, obviously he's a genius, but. He is a genius. Uh, I'm, I'm obsessed with both In the Heights and Hamilton. And because of Lin, I went and saw Moana when I swore off animated movies long ago. Um, <laughs> And I'm a huge musical theater head and he's a huge musical theater head and we're like peers. And his approach to musical theater is, is one that, um, that resonates for me that he will work with inside the sort of traditional um, model, but is pushing the, the envelope with content, who the, who the stories are about, the, the musical genres. I just, I just think he's brilliant, so brilliant. Um, and we have just, just a couple degrees of separation because I went to high school with Davi Diggs and undergraduate with James Monroe Iogleheart. <laughs> so I'm almost there. I almost know Lynn. <laughs> How about you, Perone? Who's a dream collaborator? Ooh, uh, in the hot seat. Um, you know, I've always wanted to work with Sam Pinkleton. Uh, oh, is... that feels like that should happen. I know. It, I mean, it almost did once. Like, we do know each other. Um, so, like, I guess I, uh, uh, I'm i sure that once this is over, I'm going to think of, like, 10 or 20 other people who are, like, big, you know, like, celebrity art crushes of mine. Um, I just, I, I saw his choreography in Mr. Burns at Playwrights Horizons, and I was just, like, knocked over by that. And then just, like, in all, like all of the work that I've seen him do, I feel like he uh, really knows how to create movement that actors feel good in and that is playful and adventurous, um, but also empowering. And it's very much in line with the way I like to work with actors and the way I like to build physical score, that it's really born out of like, what does your body want to do and like what feels intuitive and how to sort of like mine that and so I don't know it'd be really fun and I feel like he would get me out of my head in all the right ways yeah do you want my Sam Pinkleton story uh, Sam and I worked on a piece that ended up didn't have not happening but when we met to talk about the movement and choreography he said you know Gabriel I would really just love to take the actors and make them do aerobics until they collapse and I was like Done. Sold. Let's do that. Let's kill the actors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. Wow. Nicole, what's a dream collaborator for you? Oh, you know, I really want to do an Abdur and Kennedy play. Um, and I and I would love for like Camille Brown to work with it on me, or Raja Feather Kelly, or just give me a second project. I'm like dying to work with either one of them, both of them. Um, and like do a new musical like Angelica Cherry and Russ Baum or a Crazy Edge and Kennedy play. I think I just like 
I'm really craving something that's going to be like crazy and big and theatrical and over the top and like there will be no more kitchen sinks in my place like I just don't like I don't want to see a kitchen sink on the other side of this for a while I think that's I mean, the second part of Perone's uh, we we're just going to eliminate this is the way it's always been yeah. I don't think we need any more we're full on kitchen sink place we're done let's do other things i saw so many like beautiful interiors last year and in all the plays i saw and i was like no one has this apartment for real like they would say what their job was and i was like this is not a real home like just, that was my criticism but anyway <laughs> moving from artists that you dream of working with do you have a a bucket list play that like you just want to make sure you direct before you die? What, which one, Perone? I see you nodding. Antigone. Ah, uh, uh, it's a beautiful play. Yeah, Antigone is, 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 is big time on my mind. Marie Antoinette by David Ajmi. Um, yeah, those two, those two right now. Great choices, great choices. I'm still trying to make my way through the Shakespeare canon, even though Shakespeare and I are broken up right now, but I still have a Mackers that I wanna do and a Measure for Measure that I wanna do. Um, but first I have to see if we can come to some terms. Mm. You probably can. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You were at OSF for a long time. I understand you two being on a break, but, but like. <laughs> Nicole, do you have a, a bucket I, list play? I, I do. I have to see if it still holds up to my memory of it, but I really love um, David Edgar's Pentecost. It is the play that made me realize I was not going to be a teacher anymore and I had to make theater. And so I've always dreamed about doing a version of that and a whole curriculum around it. I have to see if it holds up with my new, um, oh. my new modern sensibilities. Um, that's a deep uh, That's a yeah. deep on the album. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've always wanted to do King Lear. Um, and I've always wanted to do another production of Our Lady of Chabejo. I did it at Smith and I've always wanted to revisit it, but yeah. Very cool. Well, so this has been really great, guys. I have one final question for you. Um, I am ending this series by asking you to think about your younger self as a director and that early career director just starting out. And some of you I knew when you were in that position, some of you I didn't. Um, if you could give that younger version of yourself one piece of advice, if you could reach across time and space and tell them that one thing you wish you'd known back then, what would that piece of advice be? Can I cheat and give two? They're related. Yeah. <laughs> um, do not apologize for the space you take up, both figuratively, but also quite literally. Do not apologize for the space you take up. And just, I'd be like, girl, be braver sooner. Just be braver sooner. Good advice. Perone, Nicole? Yeah, I kind of want to steal Dawn's. <laughs> I mean, the, the be braver sooner, you know. I, I am often, I often feel a little pang of jealousy when I see younger women who really just sit in their power and their voice in a way that I did not when I was their age. Um, and I so admire it and, and just wish I could have been a little more me a little sooner. Be you as soon as possible. Perone, bring us home. Yeah, I, I feel very similarly to Dawn and Nicole I, um, in terms of, of taking up space without apology. Um, I, I think I went into directing because I thought it was a way to be in theater without being seen. Uh, and, um, and I thought I could pass as a director in a way that I couldn't as an actor, um, and, um, that my culture wouldn't matter. 
uh, and that it wouldn't get in the way. And so I guess I would say to my younger self, um, everything you think is a flaw is in fact a feature mm. and, um, and to stop hiding. Very nice, very nice. Well, I just want to thank all three of you for being here and from all of your audiences and your collaborators, I think one thing about being an associate artistic director is no one ever says thank you. Um, so thank you for giving us great work at all of your institutions and in your freelance careers. I'm a big fan. Thank you. And thank you for being here. Thank you for having us, Nicole. Thank you for instigating this conversation. Oh. It's such a pleasure to share any space, virtual or otherwise, with you all. Thank you. Made my day. Thanks. Yeah. So. Same. Same. Next week. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> all right. Bye, guys. Bye. bye.